0: Clouds of incense smoke, swirled around the man in the long hooded cape as he chanted magic incantations in an ancient language. He was standing in a large room in the southwest wing of a long, single-storey house, inside which stood a crudely constructed oratory. The large wooden structure was painted white and black, and lined in part with huge mirrors. All the better to keep the magical energy concentrated in one place. On the ground was painted a large circle, triangle and pentagram, and in the center of it all stood an altar lined with a single human skeleton. For the past several weeks, the man had been feeding it, laying offerings of blood and small birds onto its ribs. Over time, the offerings had turned into a viscous black slime which coated the bones and dripped from the altar onto the floor in thick piles of ooze. Dotted around the skeleton, incense and candles burned, the smoke and flames fluttering in the chill night air which flowed in through an open doorway at the north end of the room. While outside, thunder rumbled and heavy clouds scudded across the midnight sky. Just perceptible through the dark was a large terrace covered in fine river sand below which a lawn dropped down first to a graveyard and beyond that to the shores of a vast black-watered loch. The man was Alastair Crowley. The year was 1899 and the location was the southeastern shore of Loch Ness. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard MacLean Smith. For those unfamiliar with his story, Alistair Crowley was born in 1875 to a wealthy, God fearing family in Leamington Spa, England. Crowley's parents were fundamentalist Christians, but he preferred to indulge in somewhat more esoteric pursuits. Educated at Trinity College at the University of Cambridge, Crowley focused his attention on mountaineering and poetry, then in 1898 joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, a ritual magic society whose members included the Irish poet W. B. Yeats, after being trained in ceremonial magic, Crowley pronounced himself a prophet entrusted with wrenching humanity into the 20th century. Whether it would ultimately prove true or not, he would go on to become one of the most notorious occultists of his generation, about which you can hear more in season one, episode 10 of Unexplained. Essentially, Crowley saw the ancient art as ceremonial magic, which he spelt with a K, as a technique for contacting spiritual entities, be they demons or guardian angels, which he believed could be utilised to attain sacred mystical knowledge and ultimately help you to develop and expand your sense of consciousness. To realise this, Crowley planned to perform a complex ceremony described in an ancient text, called the Book of the Sacred Magic of Abramelin the Mage, a 14th century Egyptian who taught an ancient system of occult knowledge. The ritual would take 18 months and require Crowley to adhere to a strict regimen that included celibacy and abstinence, as well as regular incantation sessions at all hours of the day and night. In order for the ritual to be successful, Crowley would also be required to summon the 12 Kings and Dukes of Hell and assert control over them. He began the ritual in a flat in London, but having endured too many interruptions, Crowley decided he needed somewhere far more secluded away from the distractions of the city and his nosy neighbors. And so in 1899, he made his way first to Inverness And then to the shores of Loch Ness in the highlands of Scotland. There he came across Boleskine House. Deciding it was everything he'd been looking for he promptly bought it and moved in. A few months later he began the ritual Loch Ness was an interesting choice for Crowley's magic ritual. Over 10,000 years old, and formed by glacial erosion near the end of the last ice age, Loch Ness is the UK's largest body of fresh water, 23 miles long, just under two miles wide, and reaching depths of just under 800 feet. The tea-colored tannins that leach from the surrounding peatlands is what makes its water so dark and opaque. For centuries, Loch Ness was effectively one of the most remote and isolated parts of Britain. It may be of little surprise then, perhaps, to discover that rumours of some kind of monster stalking its black waters have a long history. In an ancient biography of St Columba, an Irish monk, credited with bringing Christianity to Scotland, Written in the 6th century CE, it is stated that while travelling across Scotland, Columba saved a man from the jaws of a water beast, as he termed it, as he crossed the loch. The mysterious creature was said to have come hurtling towards Columba's boat, only for the saintly monk to hastily make the sign of the cross, which then apparently caused the beast to retreat, as if pulled back by ropes. In the centuries that followed, the superstition that mythical creatures inhabited Loch Ness abounded among the local community, but were rarely discussed elsewhere. In 1727, a road was built right along the eastern shores of Loch Ness, during which workers reported seeing a leviathan of some kind on two separate occasions, disturbing the surface of the water. With leviathan being an archaic term for both whales and sea monsters more generally, quite what they were referring to here is not entirely clear. All in all, with a number of similar reports occurring over the next 200 years, many locals were left with an ingrained belief that something strange lurked in the dark waters of the loch Despite the newly constructed road along the eastern shore, at the close of the 19th century, Loch Ness was still tricky to access, making it an ideal setting for summoning powerful forces. To deter locals from being too curious about what he was doing, Alistair Crowley is said to have posted signs around the edges of his Boleskine estate warning of an evil water monster, as well as letting people know but he was throwing a sacrificial sheep into the loch every Sunday to feed it. Anyone venturing close enough to the house at the time might also have glimpsed the fabled terrace, which he is said to have covered in fine river sand when he practised his ritual magic. Perhaps they might too have seen the peculiar footprints in it, said to have appeared there on the nights when Crowley was allegedly successful, in summoning the Dukes and Kings of Hell. These spirits included the Dark Lords, Lucifer, Satan, Belial, and according to some most significantly for subsequent events, Leviathan, not a whale or general sea monster more recently associated with the word, but something altogether more horrific. Thought to be an embodiment of chaos, Leviathan is described in ancient Hebrew texts as being a gigantic sea serpent. As Crowley began performing his ritual day after day, it was said that a sense of malignancy and foreboding enveloped the domestic staff and all who later visited the house. The building and grounds became peopled with shadowy shapes Semi-solid figures could be glimpsed, materializing and then dematerializing in different parts of the house, especially in the early hours of the night. One housemaid, unable to bear it any longer, reportedly left, while one man doing some work on the property was said to have been driven mad. One week, Crowley claimed he wrote some names of demons on a receipt from a local butcher's shop when he next asked a servant to collect meat for him, he was informed that at some point in the intervening days, the butcher had accidentally severed an artery and bled to death in his shop. As has been well documented, a few months into his ritual, Alistair Crowley received an unexpected summons from one of the Masters of the Golden Dawn, the secretive magical order to which he belonged, with a command to go and meet him in Paris immediately. Reluctantly, Crowley suspended his elaborate ritual, without first trapping or banishing the malignant entities he was said to have summoned, leaving them out in the open and free to do whatever they pleased. One bright summer's day in 1930 Sandy Gray, an expert fisher and boater from the village of Foyers on the southern shore of Loch Ness, was out fishing with two companions. After a good few hours, the trio had had little luck when suddenly they saw a large salmon leaping through the air toward their boat. It was followed by a strange disturbance in the water behind it that created a wave about two and a half feet high causing their boat to rock violently. It reminded Gray of an incident 16 years previously, when, still a teenager, he'd been fishing on the lock when he saw a large black object, around six feet wide, first draw near to the surface before sinking rapidly, leaving a swirling vortex on the water's surface. It was as if a creature with the bulk of two adult elephants had surfaced and then retreated, Gray later explained. Going back to that summer's day in 1930, Gray and his two friends reported their unusual incident with the salmon. Their story was published in the local Inverness newspaper, the Northern Chronicle, on August 27, 1930, with the headline, A Strange Experience on Loch Ness. This appears to be the first newspaper report Of a mysterious creature in Loch Ness, it wouldn't be the last. Three years later, Sandy Grey was working as a local bus driver. While driving along the loch's western shore, he saw a large dark shape moving across the water's surface at speed. He jammed his foot down on the accelerator and tried to keep up with it, only for the shape to speed on ahead and disappear soon after. The Aberdeen Press and Journal wasn't noted for its in-depth coverage of events beyond Aberdeenshire. Famously in April 1912, the paper had run a front-page report on the sinking of the Titanic with a headline that read simply, Aberdeen Man Drowns at Sea. But a report of Sandy Gray's latest unusual encounter appeared on its front page in May 1933. There, whatever Sandy had supposedly seen was referred to as the Loch Ness Monster, and the name stuck, and the sightings kept on coming. Another warm summer's day, this time in July 1933, A Mr. George Spicer and his wife were taking a drive along Loch Ness, East Shore Road. Shortly after passing through the town of Dawes at the northern end of the loch, they were just coming up to a slight rise when what they described as an extraordinary-looking creature suddenly shot out across the road. Moving in a series of jerks, it was said to be a loathsome-looking greyish colour, like a mud-covered elephant or rhinoceros. Its body was comprised mainly of a long thin neck, which undulated up and down and contorted into a series of hoops. At its base was a much thicker body and something flopping up and down, which they assumed to be some kind of tail. They saw no head or any kind of arms or legs. It looked, they said, Like a huge snail with a long neck. They watched dumbfounded as it wriggled across the road and then disappeared into the waters of the loch. The couple had barely taken stock of what they'd seen as they pulled up quickly by the side of the road. As they strained to catch sight of it again, they saw nothing but placid water lapping gently at the shore. This rare account of the monster out of the water was published a few weeks later in the Inverness Courier. In its wake, the myth of the Loch Ness Monster began to grow. A short time later, British national paper, the Daily Mail, decided to hire someone to capture it. Marmaduke Wetherall was an actor and big game hunter. For two weeks, the flamboyant Wetherall oversaw a search at the Loch involving boats and airplanes Local volunteers were asked to stand watch at numerous points around the lock, equipped with flares, that they were instructed to light immediately if they saw anything. Though Weatherall wasn't able to capture the creature, he offered some photographs of questionable evidence, as well as a plaster cast of what he claimed was a mysterious nine-inch-wide footprint found in the mud on the shore near the town of Foyers on the east side of the loch. However, after an examination at the Natural History Museum of London, the footprints were found to be fake, having been made by a single hippopotamus foot. In November... Sandy Gray, this time accompanied by his brother Huey, took a walk down to Loch Ness with a camera. The brothers found a spot on a low ridge overlooking the loch and took a seat for a moment. Together, they gazed out at the gently rippling waters while bright sunlight glistened on the surface. When suddenly, Sandy spotted something. A strangely elongated, snake-like protuberance in the water about 200 yards away. Huey took five quick shots before the object slipped under the surface. Or so they told journalists at the Scottish national newspaper, The Daily Record, as they handed over the photos for publication. Four of them were little more than blank exposures, but the fifth appeared to show, albeit blurred and grainy, a long, seemingly undulating shape sticking out of the water. A group of photographic experts were brought in to assess the image and found no evidence of tampering. A few days later, the picture was published under the headline Is this the Loch Ness Monster? This image would be quickly forgotten about when another stunning photograph emerged. It became known as the surgeon's photo due to its taker's reluctance to be named He was identified only as a gynaecological surgeon who was visiting the Loch one day when he spotted the thing rearing up from under the surface. The man managed to snap four images. Two were too blurry to discern anything, but the others showed in stark detail what appeared to be some kind of long-necked aquatic creature slowly moving through the water. It looked not too dissimilar to the head and neck of a plesiosaur, a creature that had gone extinct 66 million years ago. Unsurprisingly, the photograph created a sensation and appeared on the front pages of newspapers across the globe. It even prompted a debate about the apparent monster in the British House of Commons. Caught up in the excitement, The Times of London sent retired naval officer Lieutenant Commander Rupert Gould to Loch Ness to conduct an inquiry. Initially a sceptic, Gould collected 51 witness accounts, including those of Mrs and Mr Spicer, who'd been so startled by the peculiar grey thing that had wriggled across the road in front of them, after which he became convinced there was a large sea serpent living in the loch. His book, The Loch Ness Monster, published the following year, remains one of the most comprehensive on this early period in the subject's history. Others, such as self-styled Britain's circus king, Bertram Wagstaff Mills, were determined to capture it. Mills offered a reward of £20,000, around £2 million in today's money, to anyone who could bring it to him alive to the Olympia Exhibition Centre in London, where a large steel cage was waiting for it. Thankfully, the creature remained mystifyingly elusive. In the summer of 1935, bus driver Sandy Gray, whose apparent creature sighting five years before had first so ignited the public imagination, was back once again fishing on Loch Ness when he was startled by a big black object rising out of the water about a hundred yards away. Sandy watched on in horror as the head and neck appeared, rising, as he later claimed, nearly two feet out of the water. And behind the head, he saw what he described as a series of small ridges, seven in number, and what he assumed to be the huge tail of the creature. Sandy described the head as resembling a horse's, being small in relation to the huge size of the body. It reminded many of the much-fabled Kelpie, a horse-headed, shape-shifting creature of Scottish folklore. Grey is said to have rowed back to shore as fast as he could, then hurried to the local post office, where he alerted post office manager Mrs Cameron and a gardener named Mr Batchen. Moments later, they stood on the banks of the loch where they spotted the creature once again, apparently moving in single heavy lurches through the water, heading toward Invermoriston on the far side of the loch, before vanishing from sight. Over the next few years, as far more terrifying monsters revealed themselves and the world slipped into war, visions of mythical Scottish sea creatures soon faded from the headlines. During the war years, Sandy Grey moved to Inverness, but he often returned to his home village of Foyers on Loch Ness's southern shore to visit his mother and brother and to go out fishing. It was a cold Tuesday morning in February 1949 when Sandy set off from the shore, bouncing through the waves in his motorboat. The experienced boatman headed out into the middle of the loch, aiming for one of his favourite fishing spots on a relatively calm and clement day. Later that afternoon, however, a violent, unexpected storm swept over the loch. Soon, gale-force winds whipped the water into an angry churn. That evening, Sandy failed to return home. Friends and family formed a search party and ventured down to the loch to look for him. But before long, Darkness forced them to abandon the search. The following morning, when the search had resumed, it had just gone 9am when one of the team spotted Sandy's boat, upturned and badly damaged, on a small stretch of beach near his mother's house, and beyond that, lying on some rocks nearby, was Sandy's body. Some suggested Sandy's boat had most likely capsized in the storm and he drowned as a result, before being swept onto the rocks. Others wondered, how could it be that such an experienced boatman could have died in that manner, close enough to the shoreline to be swept onto the rocks? The true cause of his death remains a mystery. Alistair Crowley died two years before Sandy in 1947, at the age of 72, never having returned to the shores of Loch Ness. But some believe what Crowley had done there, back at the turn of the century, had survived long after he left. It was sometime in the 1970s that reports of a monster on and around Loch Ness began to surface once more. Frederick Ted Holliday, an English journalist and author who spent hundreds of hours watching the loch, claimed to have sighted Nessie as the creature became affectionately known on four occasions. He claimed that even when there were several witnesses along the shore during a sighting, the creature invariably appeared in a location obscured from cameras In a 1972 book he wrote on the topic of monsters, including Nessie, Holliday made the suggestion that perhaps the creature wasn't in fact a physical thing, but rather some kind of supernatural entity. Something conjured up by Aleister Crowley even, as some have suggested. And he wasn't the only one who felt that Nessie might be a paranormal phenomenon. The Reverend Dr. Donald Ormond also believed the same thing. Back in 1967, Ormond was caravanning in Rossshire, in the northwest of Scotland. While walking one morning along the shores of a nearby loch, he apparently witnessed a great frothy disturbance in the water. Expecting to see a submarine suddenly rise up, he was aghast to see it was instead some kind of aquatic animal with at least two humps, as he would describe it later. Horman's strange encounter would set him on a path that eventually led him to another experience in Norway, where he again apparently encountered some kind of aquatic beast out in the wild. Like Holiday, he soon came to the conclusion that these creatures, the apparent Loch Ness Monster included, were all paranormal in nature and deeply evil. As an experienced exorcist, he began to wonder if he could turn that experience toward the sea creatures instead, starting with the so-called Loch Ness Monster. After consulting a Benedictine monk, Ormond mapped out the shape of a crucifix over the Loch and made a note of the geographical location of each point of the cross. Then, on June 2, 1973, he traveled out to the loch for real to each of his recorded points. There he shouted an incantation into the air designed to banish any malignant entities from the region. When he'd finished with each point, Ormond climbed into a small boat and rowed out into the middle of the loch to where the two sections of his imaginary cross intersected There, surrounded by the black water, and the near eight hundred feet depth of it below him, he cried out, I adjure thee, though ancient serpent, by the judge of the quick and the dead, by him who made thee and the world, that thy cloak thyself no more in manifestation of prehistoric demons, which henceforth shall bring no sorrow to the children of men. When the reverend returned to shore, he was reported to have felt drained and fell into a deep sleep soon afterwards, satisfied that his exorcism had been a success. And for a while it seemed it was, but before long, the creature was back. You've been listening to Unexplained, Season 7, Episode 3, Under Water. Part 1, the second and final part, will be released next Friday, August 25th. This episode was written by Diane Hope and produced by Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained is an AV Club Productions podcast created by Richard McLean Smith. All other elements of the podcast, including the music, were also produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained, the book and audiobook, with stories never before featured on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones and other bookstores. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can find out more at unexplainedpodcast.com and reach us online through Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.